Welcome to another episode of Journey to the Pit. I'm Jim Collins and I'll be your host this evening. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you enjoyed the show. What we do over here at Journey to the Pit is we interview game fire breeders from all over the world, from different backgrounds, different cultures, different terrains, to try to bring as much diverse information that we possibly can to game fire breeders out there looking for information. We bring some history to the show, some education to the show, and also entertainment to the show. So we try to cover all aspects. But tonight we have a great game fire breeder, successful in his own right, coming out of Texas. And he's going to be on tonight to share his journey, um, how he got into game foul, the stuff that he does, how he started, you know, and all the, you know, good and bads of, of his journey. And hopefully that the special guests, well, all the guests out here tonight can take some of this information and at least apply it. And the stuff that they can't apply, listen, and I always say this, you know, you don't pay for storage space in your brain. So you can never have too much information. So guys, I want to welcome, welcome, welcome. I see people already checking in right now. We got Lawrence checking in. Um, we are watching, we are actually broadcasting this show through three platforms tonight. Um, tomorrow, the show will be on the podcast, Journey to the Pit podcast. We'll take the audio from the interview tonight. We'll uh, upload it to the podcast. This way, anybody who's not able to watch it through YouTube, Facebook, or anything like that, they can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast from, Anchor's Podcast, and you can listen to the whole interview uh, on a podcast. So this way, you won't have to worry about the videos and stuff like that being shown. I see we got people checking in all over. What's up, Robert? Robert is checking in from Northern Ireland. Like I say, guys, this show is watched literally all over the world, and we bring Game 5 breeders literally from all over the world. Um, I think the best way to educate the Game 5 community is to bring a diverse background of special guests from diverse environments, cultures, beliefs, uh, systems, because there is many, many ways to accomplish the same thing, and the best way to find that out is to hear the answers from many different people. Um, we got St. Augustine, Florida checking in. What's up, Carlos? Uh, we got Texas Drake checking in from Texas. So guys, uh, like we always say, we got Minnesota checking in. Uh, I'm trying to see tonight who's going to check in from the furthest. I know uh, one of the episodes that we had, we had somebody checking in from Alaska. You know, we had people checking in from South Korea, Japan, Ireland, UK. So let's see tonight. Uh, who's going to be checking in from the furthest place? Bone Crusher, what's up, man? I hope all is well up there. Hope you're doing well. Kentucky's always in the house. We got Louisiana checking in, Tennessee checking in, North Carolina checking in. We got guys checking in from all over the place. But it looks like the furthest that we have tonight is we got Robert checking in from Northern Ireland. So he's always been a great supporter of Journey to the Pit. Uh, we want to have a great, great show tonight, as we always do. We have a great guest coming on as our previous guest, a game fire breeder that is, like I said, successful in his own right, has a very nice operation, not a large, you know, he's in a transition of moving to a bigger operation. But as of right now, he has done wonders with what he has had and uh, has bred great fowl, healthy fowl, um, carries a lot of the principles or all of the principles that represent to me a great game fowl breeder. Um, he's coming on tonight to share his information and his journey with us. And I'm pretty sure as all these episodes, I'm pretty sure it's something that we'll all be able to take from it. So we're going to always start like we normally do, just kind of getting a little history and background of how he got in the game foul and, you know, with how his journey all started. And then uh, Juan is going to walk us through his whole journey. And uh, in a process of that, 
hopefully, like I say, guys, y'all be to take something from it. It's been probably over a month since the last time uh, it's been. We got Philippines, so I don't know. I think our, I think the Philippines look like uh, we got somebody checking in from the Philippines, and that might be the furthest uh, guest that we have watching the show tonight. Uh, Northern Ireland and the Philippines. Honestly, I don't know which one is further away, but um, you know, both of them are pretty far. Uh, we got Kentucky checking in as always. Washington State, you know, that's definitely a far place as well. Um, but guys, we're going to go ahead and get this show. I'm just trying to read some of the comments, um, but we're going to go ahead and get this show started. But like I say, guys, if this is your first time checking in over here, what we do at over here at Journey to the Pit is we interview game fab readers literally from all over the world, different types of backgrounds, different types of experiences to hope to uh, bring a very diverse um, perspective on this sport. So we got Johnny checking in, got Louisiana checking in, Texas checking in, Dallas. We got every Australia. I don't know. We, we, yeah, we got them checking in from pretty far tonight. We got them checking in from Tanzania, Australia. So we got Australia, the Philippines, and Northern Ireland. So guys, y'all can let me know which one is further away from Texas, I mean, from uh, the United States. So uh, maybe we'll send y'all guys a special gift. But uh, we got Arizona checking in. But guys, let me go ahead. I don't want to take up too much more of y'all time. Buffalo, New York. I don't want to take up uh, too much more of y'all time. But I'm going to introduce our next guest. I have honestly been struggling to pronounce his last name. He has corrected me about 99 times on it. But I'm going to go ahead and give it a shot again. <laughs> and I don't understand why I'm having such a difficult time. He don't have a difficult last name. But my tongue, you know what I mean? I don't have the... The Latin is not trained the Latino style all the way, you know, it's, it's in between. So I'm in a transition. So I'm really trying to transition to train my tongue to have the, the accent, the Latino accent to it. I'm trying. Maybe I'm trying too hard. That might be what it is. I'm trying too hard. But um, but guys, let me introduce our next guest, which is Juan. Can Kitania. I know I'm not pronouncing that correctly because it don't even sound right but i'm gonna let our special guest come on and pronounce his own last name and then we'll go ahead and get it to the show guys like i said if you have any questions post them in the comments section uh we will not take all questions because as y'all guys know these interviews tend uh to stretch you know typically two hours um but juan said that you know once you get a chance after the show or maybe tomorrow over the weekend or something he will try to get it in the, in the message box and, and uh, answer um, as many questions as he possibly can. Um, but guys, y'all guys can reach out to him directly. Um, but I really, and I greatly appreciate him coming onto the show, being willing to share his information from his past experiences and present uh, with anybody out there and hoping that it can help somebody. Hope he can avoid, help you avoid some mistakes. Hopefully he can help you correct some issues that you may have on a farm. And, and hopefully he can share some information that'll help you get to your goals, whatever that may be. So, guys, uh, help me welcome our special guest tonight, Mr. Juan Cantania. Hey, Juan, what's up, guy? Did I pronounce it correct or what? You said it better the first time, Jim. Quintanilla. Quintanilla. Okay, Juan yes, Quintanilla. Yes, so, thank guys, you, we got Mr. And Juan Quintanilla on. <laughs> it's an honor to be in your program, man. Thank you for having me tonight, and hopefully we can help somebody out there and uh, somebody who listen to what we say and, you know, take something out of out of what we've talked about tonight. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. 
Well, it's a great pleasure, man. And I greatly appreciate you coming on to the show. You know, like I said, I talked to you earlier and your wife, you know, it's uh, it's it's very important. And it's a huge contribution that you're giving back to the sport, you know, sharing the information that you have. You know, um, I receive messages all the time about uh, how much the Journey to the Pit interviews have helped people in different aspects of their program made their next season better than their present season, you know, and stuff like that really make me keep on pushing to bring guys like yourself onto the show that's willing to share the information, you know, regardless of who listen or who don't listen, you're you're one of the guys that's coming on here and say, hey, listen, let me share what I have been through and hopefully it can help you. Um, but before we get started, let me go ahead and say the disclaimer. All the information discussed in this interview is for historical, educational, and entertainment purposes only. None of this information is intended for any illegal purposes, and all opinions are respected of the individual. So, Mr. Juan, let's start by letting the audience know a little bit about you. You know, when did you get in game foul? How old were you? And stuff like that. Let's start from there. Well, Jim, I'm a first generation. This I can't say like a lot of other guys. You know, when my grandpa did this, I I started in game fall when I was young because my uncle he always had game fall around, and you know I I used to love hanging around him. And around when I was 18, 19 years old, I started my own my own thing. You know, started breeding. I started with some grays and some hatch hens, and uh, started from there. Uh, I have had some clarets for a long, very long time, which which is one of my favorite bloodlines and the leaper hatch. And, you know, I got, I, I've had some Kelsos throughout my time and that's mainly what I got right now. I got some grays, clarets, Kelsos. And, uh, you know, I started around, I started having my own around 19, late 1999 or 1998, something like that. That's when I started my own, my own operation and, it's been on since then, and uh, bloodlines that I've already uh, that I had since then, it's been the clerics pretty much, and and uh, leapers, and uh, I acquired some grace a, couple, a few years ago, a couple of years ago. Again, not the same bloodline that I used to have, but it's we're trying them out, see what 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 they bring out to the table. Right. So so tell me this, Juan. You said, and, and that's pretty cool. You said you started around 18, 19 years old. Um, which is great because, like you say, many of the other previous guests, they are second generation, third generation, some of them even fourth generation. Um, so what's really good is the fact that by you being first generation, you can appreciate so much of, uh, you know, how important shared information and shared knowledge is. So starting out, you know, 18, 19 years old, when you first started your operation, you know, how many bloodlines you said you started? Was it three or four different bloodlines? I had two. I had grays and hatches. That's that's what I started okay. with. Yes, sir. And where and where did you get your grays from? And where did you get your hatches from? I got uh, my grays. I got them from a guy here in Houston. Uh, he had some. I, I seen him, and uh, I went and looked at his plays, and he had some pretty nice ones. I, I, I've always loved the green legged grays, and kind of fell in love with one of them, and that's what I got it from. And uh, another. Uh, I got an uncle that lives around here in Baytown as well, and uh, that's where I got my hatches from. And I had him, I had him, them hatches have been with me for a while. He's got some great hatch blood, and and mm -hmm. I had them for since then. <laughs> I had since them then, that's right. Okay, so you had them pretty much since you started to kind of get serious in the breeding, huh? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
then acquired my my so, clerics. I acquired them a few years later, a couple of years later after that, and mm -hmm. uh, I had them for a good eighteen years or so, and uh, wow. they're still still around doing good. Right. So why answer me this? Because this is a question I always have, and 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 it's the same thing with me. You know, when you when you got into the game, foul, 18, 19 years old, you started your operation, you start out with your grades and your hatches. But tell me this, because I know what a lot of us getting in the game, foul. You didn't get that fever to want to go out there and get, you know, 15 different bloodlines or, you know, uh, birds from everybody. Like what kept you from doing it? Because I know when I went out there, I was getting birds from everybody. I didn't know what bloodlines they are. If they look good, they perform. You know, I was just getting them. So it's kind of cool to hear somebody at that age only really come out the gate, only really getting two bloodlines and not filling a yard up with every single nice bird that they've seen. Is that something that you kind of learned from your uncle or was those two bloodlines really the only two at the time that kind of attracted you? Well, my uncle always bred uh, green-legged. It was grazing mm -hmm. and hatches. He had some hatches that I have never seen again. They had He had some... They look kind of like a blue face, but they were like awesome birds. And I, I, I've been looking and looking for something that even looks similar to them. And I never have seen one. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's kind of that what he bred. And I kind of fell in love with what what he had. You know, he had them grays. He had his hatches. And that's kind of what I took off of. Just For me, the, the, the bird to have was the green-legged, either gray and hatch. Got you. Got you. So tell me this, Juan, since we're already talking about breeding now, you know, maybe we can kind of start the conversation from here. So you had your two bloodlines. Uh, you start your own breeding program. Um, you know, what were some of the lessons you learned or, or did you start your breeding program off pretty much from the stuff that you learned from your uncle? Pretty much. I, I started, you know, he taught me a lot of the little tips that you you know you don't teach everybody right you know a lot of people are real jealous about telling other people what to what to do and mm -hmm. but yeah he, he taught me a lot of what how to breed and what to breed and what times to breed and all that so it pretty much came a lot of my knowledge came out of what he taught me great great so now Juan, we, let's let's go ahead and share some of that knowledge and maybe we can start off like, like this uh do you do inbreeding, line breeding? You know, what is your what is your breeding program as far as that? And we can just say if we want to start with the grays, you know, do you line breed them, inbreed them? How do you maintain that line since you had it so long? I line breed and, and you know, when it's getting to where, you know, they start getting a little smaller or, or you know, acting funny, you know, they, they start doing that when, when you do a lot of inbreeding or things like that, you know, and start putting a little bit, you, you go out there and look around, see who's doing good, good with some other bloodline or similar bloodline to that. And if it's something you, you think it'll, it'll help you improve your bloodline. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I look for. Right. Right. And, uh, inbreeding right. kind of when you hit a lick, a good lick and you know, you got a, a brood cog that's giving you good and, and, and is doing good with this hand and it's, giving you exceptional, you kind of inbreed to both sides and kind of breed, you know, a monster and, and uh, you know, breed the sons and, you know, try to uh, get closer to the to the rooster and, and, and the other mm -hmm. family closer to the hand, you know, have line breathing and mm -hmm. then mix them together again, try to get as, as close to the same breeding that Originals. you have to begin with, you know.
that to, had yeah. to begin with. So you do breed uh, uh, father to daughter, mother to son, you know, first cousins. You do believe in breeding like that, correct? Yes, sir. Well, if I got some exceptional mating that I made and it uh, it, it it proved to be good to me and and you know mm -hmm. outstanding, I, I will I will line breed together, get as close to that mating as possible. Close to that mating as possible. So you typically, when you find a good pair, you typically start to breed to both sides of the family. You breed to the hen side. You breed to the to to the cock side. So you'll kind of use the Correct. same breeding system but just going to both sides of the of the family. So you got the hen side, the cock side, you'll breed the cock to his daughter, you'll breed the hens to her sons. And how many times would you have you found to be successful for you? What works for you? How many times have you seen, or how many times can you do that before you start to see more, uh, say, more cons than pros of doing it? Does it, is, is the birds able to go, you know, three generations before you start to see a lot of culling that you have to do or, you know, have you seen it go a little bit deeper or a little bit less? I believe if you go two generations, it's, it's still safe. You know, you, you don't get a whole lot of cons on it. And, and uh, you go to three generations, you're kind of pushing it. And but yeah, normally I, I won't go any farther than two generations. I breed mother to son and, and I pick the best son out of the, uh, the, the mm -hmm. you know, the, that uh mating and same thing right. with the pullets I, I pick a real good pullet put it back to the, to the daddy and i do that thing that same thing again right and, and it's two pretty generations much i wouldn't go any farther i wouldn't go any farther than two generations you know okay okay so so let's talk a little bit about since we got the the concept of how you you, you know you've been successful with your breeding program let's talk a little bit about what you look for in a brood cock and a brood hen so let's go ahead and talk about the brood cock. Like, what are some of the things that you look for to make a decision? Because um, this is prior to him being bred. You know, what, what what are some of the things that you look for to determine if you want to use a bird as a brood cock? Well, mainly, Jim, good attitude and, uh, you know, rooster, the, you know, you get close to the pen and, you know, he pulls that wing down, talks to you, you know. He eats all his, uh, all his feed. He don't leave stuff behind. You know, there's a lot of rules that are peaky out there. And, you know, good health overall and, and performance, right? You know, always good plumage, nice, you know, good-looking birds. And, and uh, you know, something good attitude mainly, mainly, you know. Right. So, so attitude is definitely really important. Not just the looks, but he has to have a great attitude as well. Yes, yes. I... I, I Try not to breed something mean, you know, you got, I don't know if some people would disagree with me, but you can breed a mean rooster. And it, to me, it's probably going to give you some mean stacks. And I've seen it. I've seen it, you know, mm -hmm. I got a gray and, and uh green-legged gray that I breed and, and the, the baby's out of him. He he, come, he can't get close to a pen. He'll try to get you. And it's, I don't know yeah. if it's passed down to generation or, or passed down to the, to the offspring, you know, but. I've right. seen it, so I try to get one with a good attitude, one that talks to you, you know, just mm -hmm. that wing down on you. It's always, it's always in a good, in a good mood, you know. You pass by, then he's always talking. You can treat him to, you know, try to get your attention, you know, and mainly health and 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 feed. I, I love for a rooster that cleans his his feet up, right? Not to leave mm -hmm. nothing behind, you know, little things like that. Like I said, good plumage. Right. 
So, so how about station? Do you like a uh, tall station, medium station? You know, you like big wings, wide back, you know, what's some of the, what's some of the physical characteristics that you like? I like uh, medium to high station and uh, long wings, you know, the smart roosters, always uh, a good, uh, good trait to have on, on a breed, but mainly medium to high station, you know, that's okay. what I, I, I look for. Look for how about their backs? Do you like roosters? Because I know some guys love roosters with wide backs, like trucks. So how how do you like the backs on your roosters? I like the wide backs a little bit, kind of not too too wide, but kind of in between. You know, it, it mm -hmm. a lot of people say wide uh, backs is power, but uh, I think a good good all around rooster with a, a nice thick full breast and 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 uh, you know me me it's got to be a. a synchronized body right everything has to be right. in accordance to the whole the whole conformation of the rooster you can't have a big old rooster with a big old back with a little light and light and keen breast you can say back right. gives some power but he ain't got that breast he ain't gonna have that power right that yep yep i got you so you you're looking for something you know medium and high station but you want a well-balanced rooster you want him still built you don't want to right. have him have a big old huge breast you know, too big for his body. So you like medium to high station, you know, and uh, all his body parts are kind of being synced and balanced. So when you look at him, he looks like a good, well-balanced rooster, correct? That is correct, yes, sir. So let's talk about the hens. You know, what is some of the stuff you look for in your hens as far as attitude and even body structure? Same thing, Jim. I like a hen that cackles at you. When you grab it, she ain't trying to get away from your hands. You know, you one it's you get it in your hands and she's nice and calm and starts cackling at you good attitude you know mm -hmm. dominant hand uh a lot of people say the dominant hand and they put them on a pin like trying to get see which one get closer to the rooster like that i i, I kind of tried that and they they said the hand can pick a rooster better than we can i, I don't think that that's that's uh completely true right <laughs> Uh, I like from your experience you say you don't think that's from your experience you don't feel as though that that could be a hundred percent accurate huh man there's i've seen some some people that put their roosters on a big old pan and and put them on to put five or six roosters on the tycor and, and let the hands pick the rooster i mean it might work for some people but not all hands mm -hmm. can pick the best right so uh mm -hmm. yeah and i like like i said i got a good body like a good body good high station on hands so that, that pretty much when you got a baby stag, it, it, it takes a lot of uh, a lot of the good traits that takes them from the hands. So mm -hmm. good, a good high station on the hands, and like I said, good body conformation pretty much all the way around. You don't want something with a big old breast and small back or short legs. Trying to mm -hmm. trying to have a good no defects on it. I I, I seen I got a few customers that uh. Hey, you got a, I'll buy this with a crooked toe or you got any, any blemish rooster that you want to say, I wouldn't put a blemish rooster or a blemish uh, hen on a, on a breeding program, right? You want as perf as mm -hmm. much perfect or as, as close to perfection as you, as you can, right? Mm -hmm. I'd rather spend mm -hmm. the extra two or 300 bucks for, to buy something that I know is perfect or as close to perfect right. as possible. I like small heads on the hens, you know? Things like that, long wings, you know, a good confirmation, right. like I said. Nice looking wide good. tail, feathers. Right. So, and, and it's funny that you said that because we do hear some people say, hey, I'll just take the ones with the blemishes. And you're saying that yeah. you don't think that's the best approach to do. It's better to, 
you know, save up the little extra money and buy something without the blemish than just to try to buy something with the blemish just to get the blood. Because you feel as though the blemish is going to be inside the breeding program, right? If you start to breed That's it. Right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I mean, I, I don't, so, like I said, again, I, I don't know if it's going to pass them genes down to the next offspring or not, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to waste a, or, or take that chance and waste all that time or waste the breeding season trying to find out, you know. Right, right. And and a lot of people, I mean, I know a lot of pe people out there think that doesn't happen. But believe me, I hear is a lot more common than people think. And I, you know, and I, you know, it's something I, I would rather uh, have the one, you know, um, without the blemish, even if I got to wait a little while longer and save up a little bit more money to get the ones without the blemish, because I'm a true believer as well that, you know, those blemishes are going to show up. It's like you intentionally put them in your program because you see it. It's not like it's a blemish that you can't see, but if you're breeding something that you know is blemished, then, you know, if it comes up two years down the road or not two years, but your next breeding season, and then, you know, they start to grow older and you see it, like you said, you don't waste a whole bunch of time, a whole bunch of money breeding a bird that you see was blemished from the door. Now I'm pretty sure, you know, guys out there say not breed blemished birds and they don't carry, but I kind of agree with you. I mean, why take the chance? Uh, if you don't have to, because again, it's a lot of time and it's a lot of money. You know, it's not like Spanish birds where they're ready in eight or nine months. You know, y'all got to wait two years. So who wants to wait that long to find out that something has a blemish? So right. tell me this, Juan. Um, now we got the standards of what you look for in your cocks, what you look for in your hens. Uh, you explain to us exactly how you kind of like to do your breeding. You do use inbreeding. You try not to go past the second generation um, and you breed to both sides. That's what you find a good pair. You breed to both sides, same breeding formula, but you just breed it to the hen and breed it to the cock. So you go on both sides of the same breeding formula. So the, the, the next thing I would like to talk about is do you use natural hatch or do you use incubator? I use incubator, very little natural hatch. Very little natural yeah, hatch. Okay. okay. Yes, sir. Is it a particular reason that you go more towards the incubator than the natural hatch? Well, I wouldn't want to wait a month and a half, two months for him to set out a, a clutch of eggs. If I've got one good hen that is giving me good, good birds, I want to get the most out of that hen. And mm -hmm. that's uh, and I, another reason I start breeding early. I start I start my uh, breeding program around late September. I start getting my hens ready for 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 around early October, and uh, mm -hmm. you know I, I buy. First, in, first week of November, I already got chicks in the ground. So that's 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 one oh, of the reasons I use cool. the incubator. Okay, so it allows you to get a, a quicker startup uh, on your breeding program yes. by using the incubator. Okay, well that you know that's why I asked because you know I don't want to assume everybody used it. You know, some people just use incubators because of the amount of of, of, of chickens they you know that they want to produce. You know, and other people use incubators because they say the survival rate is higher and, you know, different types of reasons. So I always like to ask people, you know, a natural hatch incubators. So you said you like to use incubators. The main reason is because you'd be able to get your breeding program off the ground earlier than, yes. than if you was going that. OK, I got you. So you say you typically have chicks on the ground. You said what? At the beginning of November, huh? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That is correct. And like I said, not just because I like to hatch early. If you got a good hand that's producing outstanding birds, you don't want to waste, by the time she lays a clutch of eggs, 10 to 12 eggs, she sets on them for 21 days, 
And then mm-hmm. she raises them chicks. You've you done lost thirty or forty eggs that you could have produced out of that hen. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? That's that's the reason so you, why I like to incubate mine. So you maximize, like you get the maximum. That, I mean, that that's that makes a lot of sense. So you get the max. You like to use the incubators because it allows you to start your breeding programs uh, 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 up started quicker, and it also to allow you to maximize the ma- the amount of hatch that you get out of that those hens. Correct. That is one of the main wow. reasons because, I mean, I, I, I normally breed 30 hens and now 30 to 35 hens and, and that's it. That's all. I, that's my breeding program. 30, 35 hens, six, seven uh, cocks. And uh, I utilize them hens as much as I can. I, I, I'll, I'll raise anywhere from seven to 900 birds out of, that, out of them 35, uh, 35 hens. Wow. Wow. See, that's awesome. Okay. So guys, y'all heard it. You know, that's kind of his formula. And that's why I say it's not just, you know, I I think it's important not just to learn how to do something, but understand why it's being done. And, and, you know, Juan talked about, you know, how he do it and and why he does it. Uh, So let's talk about this since you have a lot of experience with this incubator. And I think that's something that a lot of people out there can learn from, because again, when I first start trying to use a little incubator. I had horrible results. And then uh, I really never used it after that. And it wasn't an incubator fault. It was because of the fact I really didn't know how to use it. Um, and I didn't really have that many birds anyway. So it was kind of something I was experimenting with. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, the incubator, you know, like what temperature you use. Uh, you also made some YouTube videos uh, about that. So if you can kind of share what you have already shared with those YouTube videos on incubator, we, we would appreciate that. Well, a lot of the incubators nowadays, they come preset with a temperature of 99.5 or to 99.9, something like that, around around that area, right? And mm-hmm. uh, like I said, most of them come preset. I use a JQF incubator, the, the Sportsman, and, and I use one incubator, and I just keep that thing busy for the whole, the whole breeding season. <laughs> and uh, I use... Uh, Distilled water on that incubator. That's that's mm-hmm. that's worked real good for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I got a bucket that bucket that you put on it, and, and it's a four gallon bucket, I believe. And I use the two mm-hmm. waffle pads the whole time that mm-hmm. I'm incubating because I have found out the hard way, pretty much, that uh, if it doesn't have enough humidity on there, you will get a lot of crooked toe babies. And and so I keep the mm-hmm. two the two waffles in there and and Keep that that water bucket about halfway full of distilled water. That distilled water will keep your incubator real nice and clean. I mean, you can get a little bit of feathers from the baby chicks if you leave them there uh, too long. But like mm-hmm. calcium buildup and things like that that mess up your little uh, galvanized uh, components mm-hmm. inside your incubator. That that, that ain't gonna happen with distilled water. So that's I, that's why I go when it is cheap. It's it's very cheap and. Keep that incubator clean. When you come uh, end of the season, you wipe uh, wipe that incubator with a rag and it's clean. You ain't gotta scrape nothing or scrub nothing out of it. That thing is clean, clean. Wow, and and that's something. You, so tell me this, Juan. Did you start off when you use the incubators? Did you start off using distilled water, or did somebody turn you on to that? No, I like like we're doing right now. I learned it from from a video. I seen it, and and. and before I used to boil the water and mm-hmm. it works. I mean, right. But you always got the minerals there. So 
Uh, I watched a video a long time ago and I uh, seen that somebody using this steel water. So I started doing it and, and it's a big difference. If you're not using it and you will uh, try it out and I guarantee you, you're going to, you ain't never going to use no regular water again. It's, it's, it, it makes a big wow. difference. Wow. It does make a wow, big difference. Wow. Wow. You know what? That's, that's the first time I have heard as far as, you know, the positive effects you said it keeps the humidity good, but the other thing that's really great, it keeps your, your incubator really clean. Um, yes. And, and like you say, a lot of those hard minerals and stuff does have that build up on galvanized and stuff like that. And that's something that you don't have to deal with uh, with the distilled water. So um, so it's really no special techniques besides the distilled water um, that you do using your incubator. Is it or is it some extra things that you do that that makes your incubator system more effective? Well, I, I, I'll, I'll spray my the, the eggs with a, I'll mix a, some of that Listerine gold. I mix about mm -hmm. half of that with half of water and I spray the eggs with it. Give it a little mess just to get bacteria or stuff that they might have on them. Spray mm -hmm. them down a little bit, two or three hours before I set them in there. And, uh, and, that, and, and thing, same thing with the, with the little egg crates that go inside the incubator. Disinfect mm -hmm. them, leave them a couple hours, let them dry out. And then put them in there. It doesn't affect them at all. It, it's it's good for them, and it, you don't have that bacteria in there. A lot of the eggs go bad when if they're a little mm -hmm. bit too old. They got bacteria, or they got mud on them, or whatever. A little bit of mud right. that that'll disinfect the eggs pretty good. And same thing with the little egg, egg cases or egg crates. That's got about you. It. So you make sure that. Go ahead, Jim. So while you make sure that your eggs are pretty clean and, and kind of, you know, just like you say, you just missed it. You missed the missed the eggs, but you try to make sure your eggs and your egg trays are clean before they go inside that incubator. That is correct. And same thing when it goes out at uh, when I'm ready to put some eggs down on the hatcher, I'll spray when I get get those eggs out of that crate, I'll spray it down and get it ready for the next use. And like I said, before I use it again, I'll. I'll spray it again two or three hours before I start putting in any eggs in it, and and though that's what I do. It, it's worked for wow. me. Right, right. So you said you've been. So tell me this, uh, uh, Juan. So you've been kind of using an incubator system like for years. Yeah, kind of hands. I always had bad luck with hatching with hands. They they either get up or they hatch out of 10 uh, eggs or 12 eggs they'll hatch three or four and this is just for me it's not feasible i mean you got <laughs> one good hand and, and you want to maximize the production out of her if, i mean anybody would if, if you got something producing good you don't want to take a chance of that hand getting up or something happening to them eggs and and they're very valuable thing you know that's how you produce your bowel so you want right. to produce the best you can out of her and, and a lot of times, them hands, especially like like me, I, I one other uh, tip is I breed normally when I breed early, I breed the pullets uh, mm -hmm. first because they're the ones that, that they're in good feather. The hands will be molting about September, October. So I use my first breeders will be the pullets out of the out of the first out of that year, right? Because they're fully feathered. And a lot of them pullets, man, they, they just a lot of them meet the eggs. A lot of them they don't they don't know how to hatch eggs and and uh, you know they waste three or four or five eggs out of the whole clutch and that's just you're losing birds that's that's one of the right. main reasons as well 
Right. Okay. And another thing I just caught. So you said, you know, you said with your breeding program, by you kickstarting it earlier, uh, you usually use the pullets because they full feather. And like you said, the hens are molting or in and in molting or something like that. So you you go you go ahead and you get the pullets and use them in your breeding program. So later on throughout the year, do you stop using the pullets and start breeding the hens or do you run the pullets to the end of the breeding season and then next year breed those hens that you did not breed that that year? No, Jim, I get I get the the pullets breeding first. Like I said, I start them early, early October. I start getting them ready early, early. I mean, late September, start putting mm -hmm. cocks over them on uh, early October, breed them all the way till around beginning of December. And then I start, because I, I do my two-way breeding first. And then I start breeding my, my pure stuff around December. So I, I, around December, I start using the hands and get the pure, okay. the pure breed. Once they got, they're fully molted, you know. I'll start around early December to mid-December. I'll start breeding the hens. You know, they're, they're, they're about 90% out of the most, so they're they, they good to go. And by mm -hmm. then, I already got them clean, the lousy, warm, and everything, so they'll be ready to go by then. But uh, early early October is a little too soon for them hens to be breeding. They're still real, real deep into that moat. Mm-hmm. Got you. That makes, like I said, that's the first time I ever heard that. You know, that's the and I'm pretty sure from looking at the comments is a lot of people is like, that's some good information because I'm pretty sure a lot of guys also has not heard it. So you said that the pullets is pretty much your two way crosses and then you run your two way crosses. So the start of your breeding program, you typically start now getting breeding those two way crosses and then more towards the end of the year, like in December, you can focus back on uh, breeding your pures, which is typically your hens uh, because they fully molded and they're ready to rock and roll. Correct. Yes, sir, yes, sir. And I do uh, two-way uh, crossing with my hens as well, but mainly, mainly will be the pullets. And once they're ready, the hens are ready in uh, early December to mid-December, I'll start. If I got some hen that, it, like I said, it produces outstanding two-way crossing, I, that, that's where she's, go, she's going to go on on, uh, on the breeding program. But until then, mm -hmm. I'll use my pullets. Mm, I got you. I got you. So... I mean, that's some really, really good information, guys. And not only for just big breeders. A lot of times it's even more important for small breeders to maximize your clutches because you ain't really got, you know, you don't really had that many birds. And uh, so you need to be able to maximize every single egg that you get out of it to increase your chance on selection, especially if you don't have that many birds. You know, they don't have that many space. So um, that right there makes a lot of sense. So you kind of walked us through your incubator system why you use it, the benefits of using it. Uh, you talked about, you know, the distilled water, the benefits of that. I didn't know that. That's something I definitely didn't know as well. Um, and you start your, your breeding program off with your pullets because they typically full feathered and healthy, ready to go. And then later on throughout the year, after your hens come out a good moat and they back to healthy, de-loused, wormed and cleaned up, you'll go ahead and start breeding them uh, by the end of the year, by December. So, Let's talk about now. You know, we got the got the incubator down. We mastered or we maximized the egg production. Um, how's your hatchability rate like as far as because I know you talked about maximizing everything out of the hen. You know, how's your hatch? Do you have a you know, how's your hatchability rate 
with the system that you're using? It's a little bit too much, I would say. <laughs> a little too good. <laughs> uh, so you gotta it, it's, incubator, it, you got a good amount of hands. Yeah, sometimes you get you get crazy, and then you get a little more than what you can handle. But uh, it's it's real good. Uh, I do a lot of egg candling on my incubating. Whenever uh, seven days, I start candling eggs. And I pull the bad ones out. So I know I don't have bad eggs in that incubator after the seventh day. They'll be gone. And uh, I'll, normally I will let uh, two or three eggs out of the first. Whenever they start laying, I'll, I'll let at least two eggs out. I won't put the first two eggs in the incubator. That way, you know, they're fertile. They're good to go. And, and if you got any deformed eggs, throw them away. Don't, don't put them in there. I mean... Mm-hmm. Try to use you. You start start taking them uh, or culling, or like they said since the beginning. So if you you know the pullets are gonna lay some little bitty eggs, you don't put them in there. They ain't gonna do you any good, you know. And uh, yeah, I candle my eggs. Uh, I candle my eggs at the seventh day, and and before I put them in the hatching tray, I, I'll candle them again. If I see something that's not right, I pull them out. That keeps. Wow. I mean, that just keeps keeps your 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 hatching rate at damn near hundred percent. Right, and and also the quality control. It seems like this what you're doing is 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 what we would call, I guess, called quality control. You checking the eggs, making sure, like you said, the seven day mark. But well, before you put them in there, you're not putting deformed eggs in there. Then once they do get in there in seven days, you're going to determine what's going to stand there and what needs to come out of there, which is great. Because that means a bad egg or unfertile egg is not taking up a slot. So you can make sure every single egg in every one of those slots is at least a fertile egg. And then you said you go on. How far now do you start? Is that, you know, after seven days, you take you count your egg at seven days. So how much longer do you start or when is your next quality control thing that you do to kind of look for any kind of blemishes or It'll defects? Be- It'll be the 19th day before I put them in the hatcher. I'll just candle light them. By then, I, I've already done the, you know, checking eggs, not putting uh, deformed eggs in there, or like I said, not putting, uh, not putting eggs that uh, they don't look right, right? You you can tell right. one hand I got a hand that's laying real nice, looking big eggs, uh, mm-hmm. and then suddenly she has she hatches one that's weird or smaller or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. I know you want every bit of. Uh, Every egg that comes out of that hen, but it ain't gonna do you any good to put a deformed egg in there. So try to try to call them out and uh, like I said, the 19th day will be my next check. Like by then, I've already pulled out what I needed to pull out, and mm-hmm. I just check for life, you know, signs of life. They're still uh, the 19th day before I put them down on the hatcher tray. Mm-hmm. If they're still alive, they're still moving, or if if that egg is, is Right, it's got to have that bubble on top, that air, air sac on top, and and mm-hmm. you know you, you shouldn't be able to see a clear egg in there uh, or or a dead embryo in there. So pull them out, don't put them in a the hatcher, because mm-hmm. one it, it it could pop on you and it's gonna it's gonna mess up your incubator pretty bad. I I had eggs pop on uh, on the incubator before and it just it's nasty <laughs> to deal with it the, the rest of the season. <laughs> And you can't do nothing about it. You can't put chemicals in the incubator no more. That's you right. Clean it. You, you might be able to scrape it down, but it's going, that smell is going to be there the whole season because you ain't going to be able to do nothing about it. No, you won't be able to clean it up. You don't want to put water that with, with bleach on it or nothing. You want that incubator. First of all, you want that thing to be closed as much as possible to keep mm-hmm. that humidity in there. So you don't want to spend 
15, 20 minutes cleaning your incubator because one of your eggs popped and it's nasty every time you open it, right? Right. So try to, that that, that kind of helps out too, keeping your incubator clean. Just if you see a bad egg, pop it out. It might, it might hurt you for five months the rest of the season if it's at the beginning of the season. That's and right. And I had it happen so before. You had it happen. But well, it seems like, man, a lot of the success is determined not just by buying a good incubator and using distilled water. There's a lot of other stuff that comes with it, which is, I guess we can label it as quality control. You know, making sure that you're only putting quality eggs in there, making sure once they're in there, you know, you're only leaving fertile eggs in there. And then, you know, once you determine that all the eggs are fertile and the non-fertile eggs are out of there, then you're still going back to check two to make sure at the 19th day there is no deformed eggs in there um, as well before you even put them in hatches. So you're, you're, you're doing your whole process of quality control throughout that whole process. And that's really is what's giving you that positive or very high hatchability rate uh, because you're doing quality control throughout the whole process. Um, well, but uh, that, that incubator, Jim, is, is just like a computer. If you ain't mm -hmm. got the human factor behind it, it ain't going to be able to perform. You got to, you yep. got to, you know, do, do what you need to do to keep it working for you. That thing is working mm -hmm. for you. You got to make sure, you know, do the things that you have to do. You can't just throw the eggs in there and expect that thing to do everything for you. I mean, you will get some hatches, but it ain't going to be, it ain't going to be what it, you it, want. If you, you got to be strict about it. You know what? It's, uh, I think that that's exactly right. And I'm just going to use myself as an example. Um, I didn't really know what to do. And I had a horrible hatch rate using an incubator. So like you said, it ain't just a piece of equipment. You know, you have to also look at, uh, it ain't just a piece of equipment, it's the human factor behind it. And in my situation, the human that they had behind the incubator wasn't it. Like the incubator was good, but <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. So, um, but those are some really good things. I think a lot of people, um, you know, again, if you're just getting into using an incubator or if you have been using an incubator, um, you know, those are some things to think about as far as, you know, uh, not just getting a good incubator, but using distilled water, making sure you put non-deformed eggs in there. I think it makes a lot of sense to check the count of your eggs at seven days, because why leave a non-fertile egg in there for 19 days or throughout the whole process? Like, oh, it just didn't hatch. Well, it probably never was going to hatch because it wasn't fertile when you put it in there. So a lot of that stuff makes a lot of sense, guys. Guys, and if you really pay attention to it, I think just follow those steps alone um, is going to increase your hatchability rate due to the fact that you're not going to have AIDS go through the whole process that should have never been uh, in in the uh, you know in the incubator from the well, I ain't gonna say from the beginning, but you know past the seven day mark, put it that way. Um, at, at seven days, that embryo, you you will see the embryo, you see the veins around the egg, and. Mm -hmm. and once you got that, it ain't going to be completely formed, but once you got some action going on in there, you pretty much can determine that that egg is is, is doing right. But if you got one that's clear, right. that, that don't look like, like nothing has formed in there, pull it out. Mm -hmm. Pull it out because if you don't, you're going to regret it in the second or third week. <laughs> right, right. Well, that can save a lot of headache and save a lot of time. And then also, too, you know, you can make space for the for the eggs that's going to hatch versus the ones that never really had a chance. So we got a, we got the incubator thing pretty much down packed. I think those are all great points. You know, a lot of them I never even, you know, really had. I'm pretty sure other people out there do it. But, 
you know, have never uh, talked about. So now we gotten and they get to the hatch. So what stages you go in? You know, 19 days, you're moving them out. So where are we going from there? I put them 19 days and uh, like I said, I, I put them down to the hatcher, separate mm -hmm. them on sacks. I get them little yellow sacks that they sell at, uh, at the stores, at the feed stores or whatever. Normally mm -hmm. I get mine from Pinion Hatch, you know, that's that's pretty much the cheapest place to get them. And you can use a loofah from Walmart, a lot of people do. Uh, mm -hmm. You see it, it, you take take the little string out and, and, and it becomes one long, long sack and you can just put another one in, burn it up a little bit and, and, and mm -hmm. put your eggs in there to separate them. I do, I single mate every single one of my hands. So oh. I separate every egg and, and the little loofahs or in the little, little uh, yellow sacks or the little plastic sacks. Mm -hmm. And uh, once they, I, I let them, I let them 23 days. Normally it would be 21 days. A lot of people leave them 21, 22 days. I leave them 23 days. You know, they get a little mm -hmm. bit stronger. They get all dried out. And if you got some str some stragglers that, that, you know, you put them or they a little day behind or a few hours behind, you know, they will all be ready to get come out of there. So I leave them about 23 days. It ain't going to, nothing's going to happen to them. It ain't got to be 21 days. And I know you got some that are born a little early, but they got enough, enough food in that yolk of the egg whenever, on that egg to, to sustain uh, the chicks for a couple of days. So at the 23rd day, I get them out. I use totes, regular old plastic totes from Walmart or whatever you want to buy. Okay. I, mean, I use them, them. They're like 18 inch by 30 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I put them a little red light. I always use red lights. Uh, I get a one of those. You, you buy them online. They're a hundred hundred watt red bulbs. Okay, that's what I use. I put it on the corner of the box. That gives them enough room to get out of the way. If if it's too hot, they've got thirty inches to move around. So mm -hmm. I put the, the the I put the chicks in there. I, I don't put no more than 20, 20, 25 chicks on on one crate. That'll give them enough space until they're like three weeks old, two to three weeks old. Mm -hmm. uh, normally I will leave them two weeks unless I'm running out of room, but uh, normally I will leave them two weeks in the in the plastic uh, plastic toad and then I move them to a, a wired pan. Uh, clean water, I don't what? I don't like putting well, go ahead. No, I was gonna ask you what type of bedding that you use in there. I use a uh, to begin with I get it's it's masking paper. You get it from okay. from Lowe's or Home Depot. It's masking paper. It's uh, real thin. It's got a little bit of a waxy coat to it. Uh, it's real durable, and that's what I use the first the first few days. I want to say three or four days. I use that uh, that masking paper. They use painters use it all the time. That's that's what it's used right. for. And uh, I use that the first three or four days, and then I go to wood shavings, like pine shavings, the big flakes. I go to okay. that after after the fourth day or fifth day, and uh, it works pretty good for me. And you don't have to change it all the time. The paper, the first three or four days, if you got 20, 30 chicks in there, 25 chicks on there, it, it, you will have to change it every day. And uh, mm -hmm. put the bedding on the, the the wood shavings three or four days, and and 20 chicks, it, it, they'll be fine when they're little, right? When as they grow older, well, you're gonna have, probably have to change it every other day or every day. Got you. Got you. So you go to the pine shavings after that. Okay. All right. So you can go ahead and continue on. I, I mean, I just wanted to go ahead and get that little extra bit in there as well, because I knew that was going to be a question, like what kind of bedding does he use? So you, you get to that point, you got 25 chicks in there. 
Um, so you said you leave him in there how long? Uh, two, no more than three weeks, uh, and, and then mm -hmm. I'm over to. I, I got some wire pins or, or box pins that got a. Uh, it, it's a two level. I don't know if you, anybody has seen some of my videos, they'll see them out there. It's a two level pin. It's got a wire uh, bottom of it. It's probably about a foot and a half tall. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're four foot wide or four foot. Uh, the width is four foot by two foot. Okay. So what I do is I put a. I put a one of those dog crate uh, plastic uh, bottoms. I put it at the bottom of it, and and they will it, it stays clean. They'll they'll poop through the wire, and that that poop will fall on that on that uh, on that plastic uh, bottom tray underneath the pin. Yeah, on the plastic tray, I put a piece of the same masking paper. I put it on the tray. That way, I don't I don't have a messy, stinky tray all the time. All I gotta do is pull the tray out, put a new one in there. Put a clean one in there and, and, and take the paper out of that one and uh, throw it in the trash bag and it stays clean most of the time. I know that sometimes it gets in the edges of the pen and this and that, but it stays, for the most part, it stays pretty clean in there. You ain't got chicks staying in poop or nothing like that. Right. And the, the reason right, I do that, right. so, I, don't, I, don't like, I don't like to medicate my chicks at the beginning of their life. I, I don't do mm -hmm. any medication until the eighth week and all I do is I... Uh, I vaccinate with the with the pox vaccine, and that's all I do mm -hmm. to my chicks. I, I don't do anything else because we do get a lot of chicken pox, and in the past I lost thirty or forty to, uh, you know, to the chicken pox, and I didn't lose them to the chicken pox. What happened is they got to be blinkers, so or one eye. They lost an eye just because of the chicken pox, and right. Well, a lot of a lot of them chicks got damaged like that, and that's why I try to. That's mainly vaccine to the uh, i do the vaccine for chicken pox and that's about it i'll once i put them in the ground uh i'd like to put them around eight weeks mm -hmm. i start uh, you know turning them loose in uh in the woods out there i put them in a little box where they can get get in at night with a red light so they're used to the red light so they see that red light in the evening they're gonna come to it Right, and, uh, and always put them a, a, a little water and, and, and feed bowl in that box. I, I got four by four boxes, and they're about two foot tall. I use them crates. They they used to uh, uh, haul stuff, and I get them. I get them from any a lot of places. They give them away just to get rid of them. Wood crates. Uh, right. Just put a tin roof. On, put a tin roof on it, and 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 throw a light in the corner. Put you a little a little. Feeder and a small feeder, a small water. That way, if they get hungry, they get thirsty at night. They'll, they'll, they'll got somewhere to go. They used to eat in 24 hours a day, so for the first eight weeks of right. their life. So you want to keep that water and that feed around them for a while longer until they get used to being, uh, you know, asleep at night. Then, then eventually right. they'll get, they'll climb on, they'll start getting under trees and they ain't even going to bother to go in that box. Right, I got you. So, so you make sure, like you. Said, say you try to keep as things as familiar as possible even though you relocate them to a different setting you still like to use that light in there because they've been comfortable with that as well and making sure they got the food and water for 24 hours a day and you said you don't use any type of medications or anything at the beginning uh only thing you do is you do vaccinate for the pox and then that's pretty much it but you said something about the eight week mark so what happens at the eight week mark around eight weeks i start treating for coxidosis uh not treating, but you know, preventing. Uh, once or twice, or one or two days a week, I put a little bit of chlorine in the water. Just a few. Uh, I'd use about 
uh, one and a half cc's to uh, not a gallon, but a, a liter of water or a, a half a gallon of water, something like that, just to pre- as a preventative because you're letting them out in the woods and and it's where we're at. It rains. It it rains a lot. So right. They're gonna get in the mud and they're gonna drink that muddy water and then when they eat, they they're gonna eat that little stuff that 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 can affect their 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 health, right? So mm-hmm. I do give them it once or twice a week. I'll give them a little bit, or either that or, or if you would like to buy the 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 medicated feed, uh, mm-hmm. that you can use that as well. It works pretty good. I'm, uh, I mean, you can use either that or or the quarry. It it works either either one of them works pretty good. Right. So you had success with using both of them. Yeah, no, uh, I'll feed I'll feed my chicks. Hell, you know, I, I got six month old chicks, seven month old chicks running around or, or babies. I call them chicks, but still my babies. <laughs> I right. got them running around. I got some of them running around the yard, and I mix my feed about sixty percent grain and forty percent uh, medicated chick starter up to this point. To the oh. to the ones in the, in the in the yard, they they always got that medicated feed in there until they get pinned up. Once they get pinned up, they eating nothing but grain. But until while they're running loose, what I don't have control of what they're drinking. I right. Keep, I keep I keep that uh that medicated feed on their on their. I got twenty five pound uh feeders out there, and the, for the ones that are running loose. And uh, I'm like I said, I mix about sixty percent grain and forty percent uh. Oh, that chick starter, medicated chick starter. And right. it works good for me. They eat every bit of it. They, they, even the big ones, you see them out there poking at that powder. <laughs> they, they'll it's be eating it as well. So so tell me this. So with the core, you know, so do you use a core and a medicated uh, mixture when you got them out there running? Or do you stop, you know, how do you do that? Do you continue using the core two days a week? Or when do you stop doing that? I use it. Like I said, I use a little, little bit, but yeah, I do every week. I give, I still give them in their water because a lot of them they don't, they don't get the, they'll be getting in the grain and they don't need that that powder. But I still give them in the water, and I, I keep it in the water. I start decreasing. I got two big, I got one big pen and one bigger pen where I got my chicks. So they go, they kind of once they start flying, they start flying to the bigger pen. Mm-hmm. And I start. I, I keep medicating my my chicks that are on the smaller pin with the with the mm-hmm. cord. The other ones they only get it in their feed. Got you, got you. So, and I asked that question too because one of the guests, I mean, one of the viewers had uh, actually uh, asked that question as well. So uh, let's go ahead and continue on because this is really really good information because this is pretty much laying out your whole program that you use. And I can see from the questions in the comments section, a lot of people are very interested in, in different aspects of it. Seems like they're going to try a lot of this stuff um, that you're talking about. So once you get to that eight week mark, um, but you said they meet the feed. You run it. You run that mixed feed like that until they get pinned up. Right. Yes, sir. That is correct. I, like all the way. Well, was they start acting funny, getting too close to the pins and they start acting crazy around the pins, mm-hmm. you know start arguing against against the other ones that are pinned up right. so they they get to be pinned up but until then I, I keep that that mix the same mix in front of them right the chick so, medicated chick chick starter with the with the grain that I mix got you so Juan, tell me this uh when do you start warming I warm 
Uh, I want to say around the babies. I want to say around when they're three months, and I do that 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 what they call Red Devil Eye, or it used to be called mm -hmm. Red Devil Eye, mm -hmm. and uh, I use that with the oats, and I just put it. I got uh, a barrel cut in three pieces, and I put it in there, and they'll eat it. I'll leave them. I'll leave them hungry for for half a day or one day, and they'll the next day. That's how. I, that's what I use the Red Devil Eye with with the oats. But okay. yeah, around, around when they're three months old, and I, I do it every uh, once a month, ever since. And I do the same thing. I use the same, the same thing with the with the older fowl, but in a different mix. I don't use the the regular Quaker oats. I use uh, I use a little bit of dog food and some prote protein pellets soaking soaking in that water. That's 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 what I use for the older ones. And the same process. I I leave them hungry for half a day or one day, and and Whenever I feed them that, they'll eat the whole thing. And it keeps the, the internal and the external worms. I, I still de-louse uh, uh, the older fowl, but, uh, you know, give them a little powder bath and things like that just to keep them, keep them uh, external parasites. But it, it works that, that uh, red devil eye works for, pretty good for both external and internal. Right. And you said you start around a three-month phase. I mean, three-month age. Yes, sir. Yes, right. Once okay, they start, so we, they start, once they start, uh, I'll put them out and I'll leave them out about a month, like I said. And they start eating greens and eating worms and crickets mm -hmm. and berry, wild berries. From I got millions of wild berries out there in my place. And this, right, and in and, and a month, they'll clean out the whole fence line, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there won't be a berry left around the fence line in about a month, and after that, I'll start releasing them babies and uh right yeah about, right. About, about a month and then i start dewarming so so tell me this one so now they're pinned up you know now they're pinned up you know uh what kind what's your what's your feed mix uh do you feed everything on the yard the same thing and, and i'm talking about everything pinned everything pinned in the yard do you feed them the same thing and then also too if you do you know what's in your feed mix like, do you pre? Is it a premix, or is it something you mix on your own? It is a premix, but I, I, I kind of mix it myself. It's, it's mm -hmm. I mix blue bonnet and another uh, conditioner and other other mixes. You know, I, I buy one that's uh, made by Neutrina. It's called High Pro Scratch Greens. Mm -hmm. I mix that and and I put uh, I put dog not dog put uh, pellets the catfish mm -hmm. pellets. The floating cabbage mm -hmm. pellets. I do. I use a little bit of the egg layer. Uh, I like to mix mix mealworms. I got a, a few mealworm colonies, and uh, I put mealworm dried mealworms. I put them in the oven for a little bit. Mix mix about ten pounds on my feed, and and you know mix it like that. I like to add wheat germ oil every every feeding. I, I give them. I, I mix the wheat germ oil. I put a, a good bit of it. And a little bit of red cell, a few squirts of red cell. When I got, I use a concrete mixer to mix my feet every day. Right. I got, a, I got it pre-mixed already, but I, I don't add the, the the red cell and the wheat germ until I'm ready to feed it, so it won't get moldy or, it, you know, I, I I got a little more control of how much I put on it in, in smaller portions, right? So uh, right. But yeah, I mix. So I mix. I, I feed the same mix for the whole yard and. and to cocks I, I had a little bit more corn and during the winter times or the colder times i probably mm -hmm. had a, a, an extra 50 pounds of corn to the whole mix but uh 
for the most part, every since they are six to seven months old, when they get pinned up, they, every every bird out there in the cages or, or in the barrels, they they'll eat the same the same thing. The same mix. And you said when it gets a little yeah. cold, you might add about an additional fifty pounds of corn. Uh, to add how much feed? Because I seen. Okay, I seen that you use the uh, the concrete mixer to mix your feed. And you said that uh, every day you give them the wheat germ oil, huh? And I see you spray it with a spray bottle as it's turning in the mixer. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. That is correct. And and how about the uh, red cell? Do you also do that as well in the mixer every day, or is it something you do a couple days a week? I use it every day, but I use a little, little bit. I probably give two squirts uh, for the whole mix. I probably put about 10 squirts of the wheat germ oil, and I use the red cell a couple of squirts every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whatever they don't take, they'll put so it ain't gonna hurt them. Right, right. That's that's exactly right. So, um, okay, so we there. So we got uh, the the uh, worming regiment. So, so do you rotate any of your wormers, or you just continue to use the red lie? You know, how about I, I always, I've always used that. It works for me. Keeps a good body on us. So I, I have never changed anything mm-hmm. do anything else that's what i use right and you have had good success with it yes they always keep a good body I mean, it, uh, the feed has a lot to do with it too it all depends on what you feed some feeds will give them worms i mean it all depends on what you feed you gotta right. you gotta make sure you you what you're putting on that feed or what you're mixing on that feed is not creating worms on their intestines if they right. got something that's, that stays that's... in their intestines for a long time it's gonna it's gonna get warming Mm-hmm. They, it has mm-hmm. to have something that they just digest uh, quickly, you know. Right, because like you said, if they linger around in there a little bit too much long, I mean, too long, it will, like you say, you might be creating worms in them by what you're feeding. And uh, I like the fact that you say so. You pretty much mix your feed, you, you know, put your formula together. You pretty much mix your feed every day, huh? Well, like I said, when when I first get it, I'll, I'll do a big batch of it. I'll mix mm-hmm. 50, 350 pounds. That'll last me almost okay. two weeks. And uh, okay. from from there, from from that barrel, I got the barrel right next to my mixer, my concrete mixer. I put it back in that in that mixer, and that's when I add the weed germ, just to make sure I get a uniform coat on it. Right, right. I got you on that. So, guys, you hear that? So he he go ahead and and do a, do his mix which is half pre-mix and half of his own, you know, uh, mix. He mix it all together, 350 pounds of it at a time, store it right next to the concrete mixer. And then what he applies the wheat germ oil and the red cell to while it's in the mixer, he's only putting in the mixer what he needs for that day. So he's only spraying the wheat germ oil and the uh, red cell on what he need that day. Because like he said, he just doesn't want to create a situation where the, 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 uh, uh, food start the mold or anything like that. So he's not really mixing his feed every day. He's just putting it in a concrete mixer every day for what he need for that day. So he can put a uniform coat of wheat germ oil and, and red cell on it that day. Is that correct? That is correct, Jim. And especially around now that, uh, that they're molten, they, they need that, as much protein and that, that oil as they can. They, they use that oil on them feathers and, and they, mm-hmm. you know, it helps them. Anything you can help them with is, is good. I mean, whatever you feed them, you're not throwing money away. You're, you're putting it in your roost. If he needs it, fine. If not, oh, well. That, that's right. 
Yeah. Like I said, they'll that, take, I, they'll take see, what they need out of it and they'll poop the rest. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, and, and, and I think that's a very valid point. You know, it's better to, you know, and I know it, it, too much of anything is no good. We know that. But your point is, yes, you know, it's better to, 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 to have the nutrition available to them than to try to penny pinch and feed them, you know, uh, a low grade, low quality feed, you know, feel as though, well, they're still alive and they feel good to me. You know, uh, I'm more to the point with trying to feed them the best. It ain't got to be the most expensive, but the best type of mix you can kind of feed them. Um, to make sure that they're getting, you know, as balanced diet as possible. And that's pretty much what you're saying. You know, if, it, if it's a little too much, it ain't going to be no problem. It's not going to hurt them one bit. They'll just poop it on out. But you basically said, you, you know, you'd rather have it available to them than not have it at all. That's right. That's right. And you'd be surprised when you put a, a little bit of a, of a good a good effort or a good when you put a good effort of trying to feed him something good you'd be surprised when 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 some people take these birds man they 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 get them in their hands and they feel like they're they're athletes you know they they they're mm-hmm. eating good they're eating healthy they're not fat they're mm-hmm. not sluggish they they stay healthy you give them that mm-hmm. that good feed it, it makes a big difference on their health mm-hmm. that's exactly right i mean that that's that's and I think sometimes, and not just newcomers, but I think um, you got to understand that, uh, you know, everybody's situation is different. And just because somebody getting away, feeding something and say they four states away from you, that don't mean you can get away with feeding it. You know what I mean? Because the environment plays a big role and stuff like that. If they get access to the, the minerals and the dirt, you know, what kind of soil they on, the climate, all that kind of stuff makes a difference. But what you don't want to do is is penny pinch on a quality of feed that you're feeding them. Um, tell me something, Juan. Has you always fed that same feed, or has you changed throughout over the years? You know what I mean. And, and if, if you have, did you see the different effects, good or bad, different effects in your fowl? No, this is a mix I came up with. Well, I didn't come up with, but it's just a pre. Uh, stuff that it's already mixed together it's already together i'll, I'll just mix it the way i like it and it like a, mm-hmm. it, it's i used to use the maintenance from here and the maintenance from there it just kind of didn't work for me because sometimes they don't need something out of this feed or they don't need something out of that mm-hmm. feed and when you got a 16 percent feed that means they gotta eat a portion of every every bit of that that feed to get the 16 percent protein it's, if they leave mm-hmm. the 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 soybeans behind and right. getting the protein that bag is telling you it has so you got to look right. for a mix that uh, that uh that that they're cleaning every single bit out of it and, and you make a formula what you're putting together and and if it's 15 percent uh uh three ounces is 15 percent protein and they they every bit of them three ounces they're getting their 15 percent protein but if they're leaving the the soybeans behind they're leaving the the catfish pellets behind they're not eating them they're not eating the, the full the full po- uh, potential of that feed so you gotta kind of look to see what they're eating what they're not and kind of switch around but yeah mm-hmm. I, I, this feed i'm mixing is something that uh I kind of looked through the years and 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 worked on different uh, different types of feed, and this is what's worked for me right now. They clean every single one on birds will clean everything out. And that's an extremely valuable point. You know, never looked at it like that. Like you said, if they don't eat, the protein on a bag is is based on them eating all the ingredients. 
in order to get that whatever percentage it is, like you said, 15. So if you give them three ounces and they don't eat every single thing, all the whole combination, the whole, whole combination of what's in there, they're not getting that whole 15. So that, that's a really valid point and something, you know, a lot of people probably never thought about. If they're not eating every that that nutritional value on the back of that bag is based on them eating the whole gamut, all the ingredients that's in the feed at that one time in order for them to be getting what that bag is saying they're supposed to be getting. So if they're you know not eating certain things out of there, then they're not getting all the nutrition on the back of that bag. Regardless of what the bags say, if they're not eating each one of those ingredients in that feed, they're not they're missing something, you know, that's from the back right. of that bag. So uh, that is a very valid point because you can go with a higher quality feed. You can go out there and buy a really expensive feed. But if they're not eating everything in that expensive feed, then they're not getting all the nutrition that it says on the back of that on back of that feedback. I mean, I had I had one bird that was he would thrash and only eat certain things out of it. So in that case, a $25 bag of a feed is not really doing any good because he's not eating all the ingredients out of the feed. That's a really, really good point, guys. I hope y'all don't overlook that because that makes a lot of sense there. The nutrition is based on him eating everything. You can put you can put soybeans on a on a on a ten dollar bag of scratch and, and it goes from ten percent to fifteen percent if you put enough soybeans mm -hmm. in there, but it ain't gonna do you any good if they don't eat them soybeans. Guess if, if they don't eat them soybeans, guess what they're eating? They're eating nothing but scratch. That's exactly so. right. <laughs> That's exactly right. That makes a lot, a lot of sense. So, guys, I mean, don't overlook that. It might seem small, but it makes all the sense in the world. You know, so it's not about just how even the quality. It can be very high quality, but if they're not eating all of it, they're still not gaining the total the, the uh, total benefit of that feed, regardless of how expensive it is, how clean it is, uh, anything like that, how good the ingredients are. Bottom line is you got to find something good, but also find something that they will totally eat, not just good, but they have to totally eat everything inside that feed. So, man, that's that's some really good information there, because, again, I know that's believe me, that's overlooked a lot. So tell me this. Um so you got your feed mix you kind of came up with over the years. Uh, you know, you don't just focus on just a good quality feed, but you also focus on a feed that's very palatable to the bird and they're going to eat all of it. Um, you like to, you know, coat your feed with the wheat germ oil and the red cell, you know, every day, you know, you mix it in a, in a concrete mixer and feed it that day. You only apply the wheat germ oil and the red cell per day because you want to be able to control the fact that you don't want the food to get uh, molded and you want a uniform coating on the feed. So now we got the feed. The stags are going good. Uh, you only worm with the red lie. You don't, you don't worm with anything else. You said you worm about once a month with the red lie. Is it once a month, every that's, other month? That's correct. Once a month. Every first, first, second, or third of the month, I, I, that's when I do my warming. That way I won't forget a lot of people do it every 21 days or something like that, but uh, you know, a lot of times you go past it. So just to be on on, on the spot, I, I do it every month on the first of the month, first or second mm. of the month. That way, you know. And even even if you I just... forget, my boy won't let me forget. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> 
that's good to have a little reinforcement on the yard. You know what I mean? Because you got a lot of stuff going on. It's good to have somebody there, even as a young man growing up and understanding he's catching a lot of stuff that you may overlook because you got a lot of things that you have to be worried about, you know, chicks and stags and pens and working and all, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, you got your stags in a pen. You know, tell me this. Uh, is there anything that you change? Like, how do you get through the moat? Is there anything that you change to feed the care? Anything that you change to get your birds through the moat? Not really, Jim. I just, uh, I add, a, like I said, I, right this time I do, I do the red cell a little more. I spray two or three sprays. I do a lot of the weed germ around the, the molt, uh, molting months. I spray a mm -hmm. little more than, than I would normally will during the month. But other than that, I mean, clean water. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I do add, uh, uh, what you call it, uh, vinegar, the apple cider vinegar to my water every time we change it. We, change, we, we don't have water to all our, our, our yard. We have to carry it from the house back. And I... I I carry it on a on a UTB. I put it. I put our waters on mm -hmm. a 55 gallon barrel, and I, mm -hmm. that way I can do my mix or whatever I want to put in that water. So we even if we have to take two or three barrels at a time. You one at a time. I mean two or three barrels back there. But but I have control of what I put on my water, and I do like to add the, the apple cider vinegar all the time. That's another thing I add to it, and keeping the water oh, clean. Okay. You know? Okay, so you do add the apple cider vinegar to your water, huh? Yes, sir. Uh, do they get it every day or a couple of days a week? No, they get it every day. They get. It. I, I got well water, so it gets it gets green quick. It don't have them bleach and the chemicals, whatever chemicals they put to keep it clean three or four or five days. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. uh, I put a little bit of a uh, of a uh, the apple cider vinegar. I, I, let's say I put a third of a gallon in the in a fifty five gallon gallon drum. And every single one of them gets it the whole time. Every time we change waters, that's that's what we do. It keeps the water clean of two or three days, and then we'll change it again. But yeah, well, water don't last clean very long. It, it gets it gets algae real quick. Right, right. No, that's exactly right. Well, water is real hard. Yeah, it, it is, and like you say, it it doesn't have the chemicals and stuff because I don't think a lot of people know that the water coming out the sink and depending on where you live at sometime I, I lived in a place where you can almost smell the chlorine when you first yeah. turn a faucet on you can smell it um so yeah it is that water is staying like that because it does have chemicals in it but um have you ever lived in a place where your birds uh had city water or have you always lived in a place where you only had well water with your birds well water yeah well water oh Always was. So did you always use the apple cider vinegar? I have most of the time. Sometimes I used to use uh, copper sulfate uh, every, every like once a month. But uh, I, I, I watched a video a long time ago that there was this lady uh, had some regular, regular egg laying chickens. And I seen her put uh, pennies in the water. And uh, mm. you, you, you can get... Uh, pre-1942 pennies, they're, they're pretty much uh, pure copper. If you get a piece of a small piece of copper, that'll work. But find out mm -hmm. put pennies in the water, that helps out keep the keep the bacteria out as well. It'll be like copper sulfate. It's the same thing. The pennies made out of copper, so throw a couple of pennies mm -hmm. in the water, uh, and they're cheap. You get like 500 pennies pre-1942 pennies, and you can get them in a in eBay or whatever. You get like 500 pennies for 
16, 17 bucks, and, and you put a couple of them Ooh. on each water cup. Just don't forget, don't forget the, they're in there because you have a, a yard full of pennies. <laughs> <laughs> and would it be bad you're out there mowing? You're out there yeah. mowing, and those little pennies turn into, turn into bullets out yeah. there, flying through, you know. Yeah, the little pennies. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, yeah, you got to. You got to be careful if you're going to have a lot of pennies out there, especially when you're mowing out there. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, I didn't know that until the other day. Uh, it was a post um, in the Journey to the Pit uh, 362 group. Uh, Ferdy from California posted in there about, about some water, and the conversation kind of started. So I actually made a post about the same thing. I never had heard about putting the pennies inside the water. Um, but when I posted that topic, it seemed like a lot of uh, people had heard about it and had different you know, explanations. One guy said it affects the pH and other ones saying it kind of, you know, cuts the uh, the ability for the allergy to grow uh, inside the water. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about allergy in water? Just your personal opinion, nobody else's. How do you feel about the allergy in the water? Some people believe in having algae in the water is good. And I got a real good friend of mine, Isaac, man. He, I went to his place and I get on his butt about it. Hey, you got, you need to clean up your damn bowls. And hey, he does real good with his birds and, and it works for him. So I cannot say it's bad for your birds. And some, it works. It's just like feed. It, you can feed corn. If that works for you, keep, keep doing that. And it works for him. He's real successful with it. And it works. I mean, I'm not going to say, it just for 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 me and, and and my way of being and and I've had a lot of when customers come around they see clean water they like it they see dirty right. water they, they, they some some people don't like it some people just tell you well I mean that's 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 what they do too I mean I can right. I'm not against it I I have nothing against it I just I, I like my my water's clean I try not to not to get get algae and like I said for some people my work for some people. I just it's just for the aspect the cleanliness aspect of it. I, I like I like to have my, my water bowls clean and I never had or, or try to have them with algae on them. I, I wouldn't know what the benefit of it is. Right. Right. And no, like no, said, that, if, that if makes something is working if something is working for you, why change it? I mean, you can't fix something right. that ain't broken. Right. And you well, you know, and another thing too, everything don't work for everybody. So you know, uh just like that, that that individual might have allergy in his water bowls, and then you try to start using that same method, and you might not get the same results. I mean, there's guys that do very well with a certain feed mix in a certain part of the country. In different parts of the country, they can't use that feed mix. And, and that's what anything. That's why, you know, at the end of the day, you got to do what works for you. It's great to try other things because it's always, you got to always be looking to improve. I don't care what nobody say. If you're not trying to improve something or trying to find a better way to do the same thing, eventually you will fall behind. You know, you might be ahead of your time, but eventually those methods is going to kind of fall behind. So like like Juan said, you got to do what works for you. He knows success people that's successful with the allergy of the water. But, you know, based on his experience, he couldn't tell you because he never let allergy build up in his bowls. So um, so I ask you this. Are you planning on letting allergy build up in your bowls or no? Hope not. <laughs> hey, I had, uh, no, I'm just I teasing, my, man. I'm just teasing had, because that was a hot topic, man. Like so many, so many people got like got they got really emotional about that, man. They was like arguing yeah. back and forth about him. Like, dude, it ain't that serious. If a man want to leave allergy in his bowls, let him. 
If a man want to clean his bowls, let him. It's their chickens, it's their time, and it's their money. You know, you can't kind of, you know, uh, you, you can't convince nobody else to do something your way. Let them do whatever works for them. So, yeah, um, that idea in the water, I have, if I get my boy or one of my girls or my wife walking in the backyard, they see algae, they'll, they'll start cleaning. They know that that ain't, that's just not <laughs> the way they, they go out there. In the they was raised. They, yeah. The other day I had my boy, I, I got home from work and I posted it on, uh, on, on just probably seeing it. And I got yeah, home I and he's changing, uh -huh. it's covered in water. I said, what, what you doing? He said, I'm changing waters. I said, son, I changed them two days ago, two, three days ago. They're still clean. I said, yeah, but I, right. I overheard you say that you had a customer coming to buy Rufo, so I didn't want him to get a bad impression of our place. And it was a little bit dirty, so I, I, I decided to change it mind. I said, man, I, I wasn't expecting wow. that, right? But, right. you know, they, they got that culture that you need to keep the place clean and, and, and the water's clean, yeah. and, you know, it, 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 you're passing it down to them, and, mm -hmm. you know, it's good. And, yeah, and you boy, know another thing too. My wife, they won't let me to have clean right. dirty water. They'll take care of it. <laughs> right. And what you know, and I can, and I can, you know, from another standpoint as well. You know, a non-game foul person is not going to understand allergy and water. You know what I mean? They're not going to look at it from a, a game foul breeder standpoint. Say, oh well, you know, I'm still successful with allergy and water. If a stranger walk past or some authorities or something like that come to your house. They're not going to consider your foul being taken care of if you have allergy in the water. So that's why I say that's it's also something else to think about that can have a negative effect on you, your image, your farm, because it's being judged by a non-game foul person that don't understand roosters, that don't understand game foul. Um, and I hear a lot of guys say, well, you know, roosters eat from drink from the ground. And that's all could be correct. But, you know, these days and times, you know, you can't. You know, you can't ignore reality. You know, we're being judged all the time. So we always got to put our best foot forward. So, you know, you got to also think about there's certain things that you should do to uphold the best image you can, because we are being judged by non-game foul people. And you can ignore it. You know, you can ignore it, but you can't ignore it when they come knocking on your door. So that for that's what I will always suggest. You know, I'm not against the allergy or for the allergy. I don't know what the benefits or say to not even have it because again, we're being judged by people that's non-game foul. And they're not the average person is not going to understand a water bowl with allergy in it. They're going to paint you as a bad person, a very bad person. So just keep that in mind if you're debating the allergy or non-allergy bowls. Um, well, but bird, Juan, let's go ahead and move on. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. The, just, I was going to say the bird, uh, I mean, yeah, they do drink out of a water pot or, or a pond or whatever. But yeah, if you put a water bottle, clean water bottle or a water uh, container and, and he has a pond beside him, he's going to mm -hmm. drink out of whatever's closer to him. It doesn't mean he's going to go drink out whatever is close to whatever they have available. They're going to drink out of it. If you mm -hmm. give him... Mm -hmm. A pond to drink out of. That's what they're going to be drinking out of. If you give mm -hmm. them a, a water container, they're going to go to it. Whatever's closer to them or whatever is, is more uh, available to them, that's what they're going to be drinking out of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they will drink that's, dirty water if you if you leave dirty water around. That's right. That's that's exactly right. So so tell me this. So now we're in. We pretty much then covered like almost every topic. And I don't know if you know, but we already an hour and a half in. 
I don't I don't know if you realize you've been talking for an hour and a half. Is your is your battery still good on your phone? I got it connected. My my headphones are going bad, but <laughs> the oh, phone is good. <laughs> Well, listen, Juan, I mean, that's what I kind of figured because you usually like the hour and a half mark when you're doing live stream, it drains a lot of battery. Um, you know, it drains a lot of battery. So, uh, but like I say, man, I think we cover, you know, is there anything, you know, other than that, you know, um, this is what I would like to cover the last thing. And then we can kind of close this thing out. Um, you know, what type of setup do you have? Do you use tie cords, you know, square pins? Let's just talk a little bit about the yard setup, and we'll close the show out on that. I got I use mainly uh, square pins. I got four by four pins, and and uh, I got what is it seven by four pins for whenever whenever I'm breeding something like uh, let's say I got pullets. I got two pullets that I want to put with a cock just to try them out. I'll, I'll put them on one of the Mexican bigger pins that uh, the fly mm -hmm. pins that, that come already mm -hmm. prefabricated prefabricated mm -hmm. and i use a lot of the same ones but four by four pins and uh two by six bottoms on them just to keep mm -hmm. them off the ground and, and it keeps uh i like to put bank sand on it with a little bit of uh pigeon grit on the mm -hmm. uh, mixed up with the sand i probably mix a, a a shovel full of uh, pigeon grit on the sand on each pin and, and just to keep keep grit around them and uh I do, I do like, I, 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 like barrels. I do have barrels uh, mm -hmm. I have not set them up in a new yard yet, but I have barrels. I put the same thing. I put uh, sand with a little bit of grit on on the barrels, and uh, mm -hmm. and that's what I have: pins and barrels. Pins and barrels, but that, that's a good thing. So you said you put a little pigeon grit in your sand in the bedding of inside the pins, huh? Yes, I mix uh, bank sand, which is that yellow sand that uh, it's 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 thick. It doesn't get muddy, and and it's it's good. I mean, it stays clean most of, most of the time, and uh, makes a little bit of pigeon grit on there. Uh, and, and during breeding season, I like to throw some uh, some oyster shell as well, some pellet size oyster shell in their in their uh, bedding or in the ground, you know, just to have some oyster shell for the hands to to eat out of. Mm. Okay, so that's that's a, that's another technique, another technique. So you throw your grit inside the bedding. Um, Cause you know a lot of guys just put it inside, mix it with their feed. Some of some guys just put it inside their cups, their feed cups. And you said that the way you like to feed the grit is you put it in the bedding, mix it in the bedding, huh? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I do. I do. You know the hands will be scratching and looking, so they, they, if they need it, it's there, Bella. Uh, you can mix it in their feed. I mean, a lot of people do it that way. Uh, but I, I like to put it in the bedding in the sand. Whenever I first put a good clean sand on there, I throw I throw a shovel full of uh, red grit or, or the pigeon grit on there, mm -hmm. and it lasts a long time. And they'll scratch it around, move it around, pick pick mm -hmm. whatever they need out of it. Mm -hmm. Like I said, whenever breeding season starts, I like to put a put a half a shovel of uh, oyster shell and have it in their bed. And when they scratch around, they'll find the little pellets of uh, or the little deals of oyster shell in there and. They'll have some extra calcium in there to to help them out when right. they start laying eggs. Right, and then One it other can thing stay there is, is too mm -hmm. because I'm oh, sorry. Another thing is no, that, uh, you can you can mix uh whenever breeding season come around and not just breeding season. You know you get in the pens and whenever you first move them around, they got nice clean grass and they eat the grass out and they step on it and it wears out and they wear out every single bit out of the edge of the pen. 
mix a little bit of that alfalfa powder in their mix. That's that's one other thing why I like to have a mix a little bit of with a little bit of a wheat germ. I, I sometimes throw mm-hmm. a handful of alfalfa that compounded or compressed alfalfa they sell on that bell that that bell that uh, that's already powder. Throw a little mm-hmm. bit of alfalfa in there, and it gives them a little bit of green to 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 add to their mm-hmm. meat mix. You know, whenever they're 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 lacking the the greens around their pens. You know, some a lot of people don't have. It's not feasible for them to move the pens around to fresh grass and put a little bit right. of alfalfa grass or alfalfa hay in there, and that gives them a little bit of green to eat out of. Right, right. No, that's that's great information, and especially with that grit. Thing. I never even thought about that, throwing a grit. I know in Puerto Rico, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the birds are kept with, um, you know, sand, beach sand, but we use beach sand. And in the beach sand, there's a lot of shells inside that beach sand. And you'll, you'll constantly see uh, the birds, you know, scratching in that beach sand. And that's exactly what they're picking up. All the little chips of shells and stuff like that from the beach. Because you got you know, an opportunity to take the river sand or the beach sand. They always say, no, use the, use the beach sand. And it goes back to what you just said. You know, you throw that, that pigeon grit and oyster shells in, inside the bedding itself, and they get to scratch around and eat it as they need it. So that makes a lot of sense. But Juan, it's been great. We're at an hour and almost 40 minutes. And like you said, your headphones are about to die. Uh, we want to thank you very much, man, for coming on the show and sharing the information. It was a ton of great information, a lot of new stuff that I never heard about, you know, with incubators, the grid, you know, how you do your worming, you don't change it. You know, it's a lot of stuff, you know, from a different perspective that never thought about. And I know there's a lot of people that's watching that have watched other shows, um, and I'm pretty sure they have not heard some of the stuff that you talked about tonight. So, I, you know, again, we thank you so much for coming on the show tonight, sharing your information. We would love to have you back on the show. Um you know, you dropped a lot of great jewels, cranking up the incubator, maximizing, you know, your hatch rate by using quality control. I mean, that's a ton of great information uh, in this interview. Um, and again, that's why it's so important to bring breeders from all over the place, from different backgrounds and stuff, because a lot of the questions I asked you, I asked everybody else. But like we talked about last night, the answers are always different. So, you know, it just shows you you can accomplish the same thing but there's many different ways to accomplish it. And you just need to pick the method, the concept or system that uh, that fits you. You know, you talked about the well water. That's the reason why I use the apple cider vinegar. You know, it's a lot, a lot of great information in here that I know is a lot of guys out there on well water. Um, I know a lot of guys who don't use this still water in the incubator. Um, they just like, oh, I'll just pour some water in there. I've I seen it. So now we know why and what the positive effects of using that distilled water is so again man like i say you dropped a lot of jewels tonight we greatly appreciate you coming on the show and sharing this information uh we'll like for you to come on the show at a further you know at a later date i was gonna say further date but at a later date man but thank you very very much man for coming on and sharing your information with us is there any last words you kind of want to close out with just thank you for the opportunity. It was an honor to be in your show, Jim. Uh, thank you for everything you do for us, man. I, I know you don't hear it enough. You, you do a lot of great things for the sport, and uh, it's, it's awesome to have somebody that he, for, like you to, that cares about it. And, and mm-hmm. you know, we are a very divided group, and mm-hmm. I wish we were a little bit more united. And, and I hope somebody can get some good out of, out of tonight's show. And, and you know, 
there's there's a lot of other interviews with great information. Take whatever you can out of each one of them uh, interviews and and uh, for the beginners, I mean, you you go you spend the time and watch these interviews and and get what what you like best or what you think is more feasible for you out of each one of them. You don't have to follow somebody's steps right right to the T, right? Get what right. you what you think is best for you and what's more feasible for you and 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 right. use it, utilize it. There, it it has taken some of these people and some of these guys that have been interviewed years and years of hard knocking uh, mm-hmm. on and you know and, and trips and 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 you know headache and heartache to get to where they're at mm-hmm. and and they're sharing this knowledge with y'all just to right. you know to to get you ahead a little bit of the game so you don't have to be wasting three or four or five years of, of, of you know heart heartache you got a lot of good information on these interviews and just get the best out of each one of them and 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 you know utilize it the best way you can there's a lot of a lot of good information and thank you jimmy like i said it was an honor Thank you for everything you do for us and, and you do for the sport. And uh, it was an honor being on your, on your show. Thank you, man. That's all I got. Thank you. I, I greatly appreciate it, man. And and like I say, again, you just dropped some more jewels, uh, you know, letting them know how important it is and how beneficial it is to take the time out to watch these interviews. But like I say, man, brother, I greatly appreciate it. Hopefully one day God willing, our paths will cross and we'll be able to shake hands and break bread together. I will be out in Texas. I don't know exactly when, um, but I will be out in Texas, man. And hopefully when I come on out there, man, we can sit on down and, like I say, talk some uh, talk some game foul, tell some stories, uh, share something to eat, man, and really enjoy each other. So, uh, Juan, have a great evening. Um, again, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, I will be talking to you soon. And, guys, if y'all just tuning in, uh, the the this will be also uploaded to the podcast. So if y'all guys out there working on a yard tomorrow, just know that you can tune into the podcast and listen uh, to this interview uh, through your headphones while you're out there on a the yard. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor Podcasts, wherever you want to go, the episode will be up and running uh, for y'all guys tomorrow to, to, to uh, like I said, listen to it. And like Juan said, you know, really take advantage of this information. Um, Again, you know, we spend 10, 15 hours a week on Facebook. Uh, we can take one or two hours a week and watch the interview. I'm pretty sure it's worth this waiting gold. And like Juan said, a lot of this information was learned over years and years and years of, of hard work and making mistakes. And, you know, now they're putting this information in your lap. So Juan, good night. God bless you. And I will talk to you soon, brother. God bless you and all of those listening and the, the ones that will listen. Uh, y'all have a good one and thank you for thank you Jim have a good night brother thank you brother I greatly appreciate it Juan have a good night you too brother take care all right bye righty, guys we had Juan on and like I say man he dropped a lot of jewels uh in this interview I mean he he uh, brought a lot of new things a lot of you know new things and what I mean by that the way he does things you know a lot of the questions were the same that we asked you know uh, all the uh, guests that we have come on the show, but that's done on purpose. That's done on purpose just to show you that it's many different ways to accomplish the same thing. You don't have to do it the same identical way because what what's works for one person may not work for you. So bringing these uh, breeders on from all different parts of the world, different backgrounds, different belief systems, different concepts when it comes to breeding, um, you know, in different terrains, they're raising their birds in different environments. And as you can tell from watching these interviews, it ain't all the same. 
what works in one place does not work in another place. And Juan talked about that as well. You know, you got to think about uh, uh, different types of terrains, different types of environment plays an enormous role in the success of your breeding program and the success of you raising your uh, your, your, your game foul. So understand, uh, it's great to hear information from somebody who has been successful raising birds in your type of environment. And we have had people come from, you know, interview guests that came from desert-like environments, rainy environments, dry environments, humid environments in all different parts of the world, from the Philippines, all over Hawaii, United States. So again, guys, um, it's all done on purpose. Hopefully you can take some information from this interview. Um, if you're watching from YouTube, we greatly appreciate it. Make sure you subscribe and hit that bell button so you can get notification. Guys, if y'all watching from Journey to the Pit YouTube, uh, um, um, Journey to the Pit Facebook page, uh, make sure you hit that follow button and that arrow, you know, that thumbs up button. And if you're listening from my personal page, just give it a like. But again, guys, I ask all y'all to share the information because it's all about each one teach one. Y'all have a great evening. And until next time, stay focused, stay positive, stay blessed. I'll, I'll talk to y'all then. Good night.